Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Hey listeners. Welcome back to Buried Motives. We're glad you're joining us this week. We really are. To hear another one of Christy's exciting cases. Because you're taking us down under today, aren't you? I am. Once more. Our listeners have been growing in Australia and we are grateful. They absolutely have. I'm actually quite pleasantly surprised how many listeners we have from Australia. And so to show our appreciation, I thought we could discuss one of their most harrowing serial killer cases of all time. Ooh. The backpack killer. No. Aw, dang. (laughs) But hopefully I'll do it justice for our friends down under. Are you going to be breaking out the slang again? No. (laughs) I was tempted. I'm dorky enough. If any of you want to go listen to Catherine Knight, I totally put in tons of Australian slang into that episode and it was so fun. But in this one, I have only one slang that I put in there because it fit. Hmm. I don't know anything about your case, Christy, so I don't even know how to segue into it. (laughs) Well, I'll do that then for you. Outside of North America, we have the most listeners from this beautiful country. But unfortunately, there is nothing beautiful about our case today. Is it a woman or a man? It's a man. Oh, yeah. You showed me a picture. Dang. Yeah, I I just showed you his picture. (laughs) Right before we started, I was like, here's the picture. I haven't told her anything about the case yet, but I always really like to see what the killer looks like. Oh, man. And that's why we post them on our social medias. I am with it today. (laughs) It might be a long episode. (laughs) Okay, I'm paying attention. All right. Today's Dirt Bay gives us our first opportunity to talk about gerontophilia. Ooh, I don't know that one. It's basically the opposite of pedophilia. The murderer targets the elderly and has a sexual perversion towards them. This type of serial killer is uncommon, which likely contributed to the wide media coverage that this case received. It's just hard to even fathom that someone would target the elderly in a sexually perverse way. Yeah, well, you do hear about those cases where workers in the nursing home will actually abuse, like sexually abuse people with dementia. That is true. Because they can't tell on them. Mm -hmm. It is disturbing. It is. But it's very uncommon for a serial killer. Many refer to him as a coward since his victims are more vulnerable and not able to fight back as easily as maybe a younger victim could. And I agree with this, but research also suggests that there may be other reasoning behind him setting his sights on grannies. So did he have a thing for granny when he was little? No, but police think that at the beginning. Okay. They do. The victim's ages range from 60 to 93, earning this worm of a man the nickname the granny killer. That's just wrong. It is. And I would say most of his victims are in their 80s. It's almost as disturbing as pedophilia. It really is, actually. As I really dug deep and got into this case and was writing out my show notes, it just became more and more disturbing the more and more I learned about it. And the ladies are the sweetest little ladies. They're amazing. Just those little grannies that want to take care of everybody. Yeah. And I couldn't help but think of my own grandmothers as I was writing out this case. Oh, yeah. No. Dirtbag already. I don't even have to hear the case. Right? He totally is because all these women were someone's grandma. Our dirtbag is John Wayne Glover. He was born on November 26, 1932, in Wolverhampton, England. His mother's name was Frida, but I didn't find any information regarding his father, 
just that his mother had divorced him when John was around eight years old. One source I found said that John was born with a different middle name, but that he later changed it because of the famous actor John Wayne. He wanted to sound cooler, I guess. (laughs) And I thought of the American serial killer John Wayne Gacy and decided that no one should ever name their child John Wayne again. No. (laughs) Just don't do it. Sorry to all the John Waynes. (laughs) That's right. These two guys have ruined it for you. And when I was researching this case, everything was coming up. John Wayne Gacy, John Wayne Gacy. No, we're talking about John Wayne Glover. And so maybe he's not as well known. Not in North America, but he's super well known in Australia, from what I've heard. Frida was said to have had a bad history with different men during her lifetime. I thought that was the nicest way to put it. (laughs) (laughs) She had multiple boyfriends and husbands throughout John's life. Some of those boyfriends happened while married to her multiple husbands. Oh, dear. She married three more times after divorcing John's father. And John reportedly resented his mother for her promiscuity. John was the oldest of his siblings and often had to babysit them so his mother could go out. Or she would bring them all with her and make them wait in the car while she visited strange men in night spots. Oh, not much of a role model. No, she was living her best life, I guess, (laughs) and not really thinking about the consequences that it would have on her children. But definitely would skew your ideas about sex. Oh, absolutely. And it totally does. Because apparently John once found extremely provocative photographs of his mom, Frida. (gasps) Ew. And he would later pose some of his deceased victims in this manner, suggesting that his mother's actions had a significant impact on John. He was trying to relive her adventures? In a way, I guess finding those photographs really had an impact on him and he just kind of would relive that. And it makes me think that his choice of victims is more than just being a spineless slug. It's not just about them not being able to fight back as easily. I think it's a classic case of a serial killer with mommy issues. Yeah, that's what it's sounding like. Mm -hmm. John's family were working class and it wouldn't take long before John started to get in trouble with the law. John dropped out of school at age 14 And by 1947, he would get caught stealing things like handbags and clothing. He later said he started doing it to help out with the family finances. Oh, so this other case that I was researching for, uh, one of the studies that it presented said that most sexual predators actually start with theft of women's items. Yeah. We've seen that in a lot of even the cases we've covered. Or voyeurism, I bet, too. Mm -hmm. They start somewhere. Eventually, John joined the British Army, but he was kicked out after two years when they discovered his criminal record. Around the age of 24 or 25, John decided to start a brand new life in Australia. He first moved to Melbourne and would end up getting his Australian citizenship. And I bet Australia wants their money back. (laughs) Oh, for sure. John moved for a fresh start, but being in a new country with no job training, as a school dropout, it didn't take long for John to continue in his thieving ways. He reportedly moved with only his driver's license and 30 shillings in his pockets. What was he expecting to do with that? I don't know. He was just on an adventure. I tried to look up how much money that would have been now, but it doesn't look like British shillings are even used anymore. But if I do the math with what shillings are worth in other countries, he had less than a dollar in his pocket at the time. That sounds crazy. Right? Your driver's license and a dollar. (laughs) That's a good plan. Mm Mm-hmm. Good plan to fail. With no training, nothing. (laughs) Which is kind of exciting for a regular person, if you're not a dirtbag like him, to just start this brand new adventure. That sounds terrifying, actually. (laughs) I think it sounds exciting. But unfortunately, what he does is terrifying once he gets to Australia. 
He was convicted on two counts of larceny in Victoria and theft-related charges in New South Wales. By 1962, his charges escalated to two counts of assault towards women, which included removing parts of women's clothing, in Melbourne, two counts of indecent assault, one count of assault causing bodily harm, and four more counts of larceny. He was sentenced to only a three-year bond of good behavior, which is like a criminal being under parole in North America. That's really stepping up his criminal activity and really just sounds like a slap on the wrist. Absolutely. I totally agree. Because he's not just stealing handbags and clothing anymore. No. In 1965, he was caught breaking his bond and was jailed for a short time. His file at this jail had been noted by a police officer that John would probably become a serious sex offender. But regardless, John was released from jail, a free man to commit the horrors to come. So how did he get released if they already pegged him for a sexual offender? It was just one of the officers that worked there had noted in his file that he thought this man would become a sex offender. And he was right. He was right. But I bet you he didn't expect him to prey on the elderly. No, I don't think so. Isn't it sad, though, that we think like, oh, we can expect them that they would prey on children because that happens so much more common. Yeah, that is sad, right? actually. Mm-hmm. In 1968, around the age of 35, John married the beautiful gay Rolls. The next year, they moved to Sydney and started to live with Gay's parents, John and Essie Rolls, in Mossman, which is an affluent suburb on the lower North Shore region of Sydney. And I have to say the pictures of Mossman are amazing. It looks like such a nice place to live. You want to go there? Mm-hmm. John and Essie didn't get along. Living together likely didn't help either. Essie allegedly ridiculed John for coming from a lower class family. However, like many other serial killers, John experienced a short-lived time in his life when things seemed to go well. Gay gave birth to two daughters, and again, like in other cases, I will leave out their names. Living with Gay's parents, it was easier for John to financially take care of their girls. Gay worked as a medical receptionist, and John worked for the 4 and 20 meat pie company selling meat pies. Like a door-to-door meat pie salesman? Yeah. And he also had different routes where they would regularly get his meat pies and stuff. Okay. Yeah. It sounded like he was good at his job and he held down this job for a long time. Oh. It was his career. So was he charismatic? I wouldn't call him charismatic, but he was definitely described as friendly. Okay. The girls were able to attend boarding school and John later said that they were able to receive, quote, everything that I should have had. And I wonder if his daughters had any idea of what a creep their dad would turn out to be. It just seems like such a double life. So he doesn't start any of this until after they're older. Yeah. So he's a late bloomer. Allegedly. Okay. Allegedly. His known murders all happen when he's in his 50s. Wow. So do they speculate, though, that more took place when he was younger? Absolutely. Okay. And we'll talk a little bit about those. But I just think it's so scary when from the outside looking in, everything appears to be normal. If you were John's neighbor and didn't know about his criminal record, you would see this hardworking family man with a wife, two kids, a steady job, who even volunteered at the Senior Citizen Society. Oh, creepy. Uh-huh. When we find out later, that is super creepy when we know what he's done. He was described as friendly and even trustworthy. And I also just wanted to note that his wife, Gay, allegedly didn't have any knowledge of his previous offenses. She didn't know of his criminal record. But really, he didn't have very much of one. No, but he did have all of those charges once he got into Australia Mm -hmm. and had been jailed. But in this case, I do believe that she didn't know anything about it. Again, this isn't social media time where you can plug them in and look them up. (laughs) So and how would she even know to look for them? 
do you do criminal background checks on everybody that you meet? No. So unless they're forthcoming, you're not going to know about it. Right. And in her eyes, he's proving himself. He's been a good husband. He's been a good father. He's taking care of them financially. He's out there probably mowing the lawn, (laughs) waving to the neighbors. Yeah. It's just so creepy. It's not the world of backchecker.com, right? No. (laughs) But now, after you listen to Buried Motives, that's what you do to all your neighbors. (laughs) You've been married for 20 years. You still got to Google them (laughs) because you just never know. Because that is what happens with gay. They're married for over 20 years. Wow. John's mother, Frida, came to live in Australia in 1976. By the late 80s, things would begin to drastically deteriorate for John. It was reported that John's relationship with his mother-in-law, Essie, continued to go downhill. In 1988, Essie, John's mother-in-law, was moved to a nursing home, the same home where John would later be reported for molesting women. So he would go to visit her and then molest other patients while he was there. Did he have a thing for the mother-in-law? No, he had much disdain for her. But was it because he like secretly loved her? No, I and don't wanted think so. her? No. No. That's a good story, but no. <laughs> But he would continue to go visit her and molest these other patients until Essie passed away in January of 1989. Hmm. Makes you wonder, did she have a sixth sense about him? Because at this time, he's been married to her daughter for 20 years and sounds like he's provided for her well enough. But they've always been living with them, too. Oh, yeah, right? They're, that's right. Yeah, they're living in their <laughs> home. Well, he reportedly said that she looked down on him from not being well off because mm-hmm. they're in a pretty prestigious area of the city. But maybe she did. Maybe she just never got over her mama's intuition over him. Yeah, maybe. That's a long time to live with your in-laws. It is. 20 years. Must have been a really nice house. Probably. And he probably helped take care of things. And as the parents were ailing, it probably just seemed to work. Mm -hmm. That makes sense for a lot of families, actually. It does. And he wasn't just sitting on the couch and freeloading off of them. No, he had a job. Yeah. Yeah. Given their girls a really good life, sent them off to boarding school. There was no red flags at this point. I don't know. I'm still having a hard time wrapping my head around. If you've got a good job, why don't you get your own house and support your own family and not live with your in-laws? Right? Yeah, I don't know the story behind that. But maybe that's our Canadian viewpoint because that's normally what happens here. That's true. Where a lot of cultures, it doesn't. Yeah. In 1989, John's mother died of breast cancer. So this is the same year that Essie dies. John was also diagnosed with male breast cancer later that same year. John viewed this as a feminine disease, which added to his negative feelings towards women. He was able to receive a mastectomy and survive the breast cancer. However, soon afterwards, he was also diagnosed with a prostate condition that rendered him impotent. Oh dear. Mm -hmm. 1989 was not a good year for John. 1989 is also the year that his known killing started. So all of these things may have been a trigger for him, But beginning your career as a serial killer, like we mentioned already, at the age of 56, is extremely rare. And John is suspected of more attacks and murders than what he is eventually convicted of. So Mm -hmm. like in Bruce MacArthur, authorities believe that he likely started killing decades earlier. And some of his suspected victims date back to the early 1960s. Oh, wow. Which would be almost 30 years prior. Which would actually put him more in line with most serial killers. It would. Starting in their 20s. Yeah. Perhaps with all these triggers, John may have escalated his murders and attacks. He would viciously murder six elderly women over the next 14 months and attack even more. That's a lot of women. So he could have been already murdering, but all these things maybe triggered him to escalate that. Mm. 
On January 11, 1989, after the death of his mother, John spotted 84-year-old Margaret Todd Hunter walking on Hale Road in Mossman. He jumped out of his car and attacked the unsuspecting woman. He punched her in the face and took off with her purse. What? He stole $209 from her purse and went straight to the Mossman RSL Club, where he spent her money. And I believe the RSL Club is a club for veterans. RSL stands for Returned and Services League of Australia. Wow. I'm failing to understand his motive for this. Like, was he just trying to exert his power? Like, did he feel powerless in his world? I feel like he has a genuine hatred towards elderly women. But his mom wasn't elderly. His mom was at this point. Right. But if he started before, like in the pictures of his mom naked, they weren't of her when she was elderly. Right. And I do bring this up at the end. I kind of feel like could it have been that his victims aged with his mother? Oh, okay. Yeah, that I could see that. Yeah. Because some of the victims that they suspect him of were more like in their 60s. Like like early on? Yeah. So it would have been closer to his mom's age. Oh, So I don't okay. know for sure. This is just me speculating. But yeah. I kind of feel like that could have been a possibility. That makes sense then. Because one of his victims is eerily close looking to his own mother. And you said that the speculated killing didn't actually start until his mom died. Right. Huh. The same year. Yeah. And his mother-in-law died. Interesting. And he had animosity towards both of these women. Mm -hmm. Police investigated the crime, but it was considered a mugging and they had little hope for finding who was responsible, even though Margaret was able to give a fairly accurate description of her attacker. She survived, but authorities had no idea what was about to happen next. Almost two months later, on March 1st, John's next victim wouldn't be so lucky. John was leaving the RSL club on Military Road and noticed 82-year-old Gwendolyn Mitchell Hill walking down the street. John walked to his car and grabbed out his hammer. He slung it through his belt and headed towards Gwendolyn. He followed her all the way to her apartment building on Military Road. And I couldn't help but thinking with all of these, it's just like he's hunting these women. He finds them, he grabs his weapon, and he follows them. Well, I'm just picturing these little tiny old women, like, with their purse shuffling along, just strolling in the day. Yeah, most of them have a walking stick or a cane. Dirtbag. Real dirtbag. The apartment had one of those entrance foyers, and when Gwendolyn tried to open the front door, John hit her on the back of her head with his hammer. And I don't know why, but I've said this before, hammer hittings just make me cringe. (laughs) I just cannot even imagine. (laughs) It hurts so bad. Oh, it really would. Did he knock her out? Yeah, she fell to the ground, but John didn't stop there. He continued to smash her with the hammer, breaking several of her ribs. Once satisfied with his brute force, John grabbed the woman's purse and ran. He made off with a whopping 100 bucks. So him beating her, it sounds like he has to exert his power over these people. And maybe it was because he was powerless against his mom, and he was powerless to change his mother-in-law's attitude towards him or impression of him. True. Even after 20 years. Yeah. He was a young man. This was an older woman. He could have just grabbed her purse. Why did he have to beat her? He didn't. And why did he have to even sneak up behind her? Yeah. And so to me, that just sounds like he needs to feel that macho power over them. That's a good take on it. Yeah, I would agree. Because it's not really about the robbery either. No. Gwendolyn laid in a pool of her blood until two neighborhood boys found her laying on the ground. I read in one source that these poor boys knew Gwendolyn, which would make finding her even that much more traumatic. She was still alive when the boys found her. Good for her, fighter. Police and ambulance were called to the scene, but sadly, Gwendolyn died before taken to the hospital. 
Unfortunately, there was no forensic evidence found because neighbors who thought that Gwendolyn had simply fallen had cleaned up the blood and washed down the crime scene before the police arrived. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. That's what you would expect if you came across an elderly woman on the ground and there was blood that she just like fell and hit her head. Yeah. Because there wouldn't be any blood from the hits to the rib or at all. Those would all be internal. Right. And clothed. Mm -hmm. So you wouldn't see them. It's unfortunate. That is. And maybe they cleaned it up too because the boys were there and they had found him and just let's clean up all this blood so it's not so scary. They were trying to do a good deed. Again, police thought this was a random mugging, except this one had led to murder. They had no way to connect this crime to the previous mugging and there were no eyewitnesses to be found. But he's picking them up in the same area. He is. But this is just the second mugging. The first one survived. This is Mm -hmm. the first murder from it. And they're two months apart. I don't think I'm letting Granny out to go for a walk by herself anymore, though. No, and it will get to that point. Once they realize what's happening, there will be actually like mass hysteria. Soon after this attack, John attacked a man named Raymond Roper who was walking down the street. Authorities believe that John thought Raymond was actually a woman because of the hat and overcoat that he was wearing. And so this attack could have been accidental on John's part because it's the only man he attacks. Okay. Again, around two months later, on May 9th, 1989, John Wayne Glover would strike once more. His victim would be Lady Winifreda Isabel Ashton. That's quite a name, Will. And she was given that name because she was the widow of famous English-Australian Impressionist artist Sir John William Ashton. And so everyone called her Lady Ashton. Aww. All these women had the sweetest names and looked like the nicest grandmas you could find. And I thought, what a piece of dirt anyone would have to be to hunt and prey on these seasoned women. Lady Ashton was walking home from playing bingo, wearing a red raincoat on Military Road towards Raglan Street, when John noticed her walking towards him. John followed her to her nearby apartment. This time, he put on gloves and then hit her with his hammer. He pushed her to the ground and drug her into the apartment's garbage alcove. Lady Ashton was super tiny and recovering from lymph cancer. But John later admitted that the frail woman almost overtook him. What? She fought until the bitter end. Good for her. John said he literally had to fall on top of her to overpower her. And then he hit her head against the pavement until she fell unconscious. But John was not finished with Lady Ashton. Now that she couldn't fight back, John removed her pantyhose and strangled her last breaths out of her with them. He wrapped the pantyhose around her neck so tight that they cut through the skin and left fibers embedded in her neck. What? After she was dead, he neatly set her walking stick and shoes by her feet. He then grabbed her purse and fled the scene. And I hadn't actually put this in here, but he does this all the time where he puts the shoes on the walking stick neatly by the body. And a lot of people speculate that that's because of his military experience. That he had to be orderly? Yep. John found $100 in Gwendolyn's purse and again went to blow his winnings at the RSL club in Mossman. While at the club, he made a comment to a staff member about how he hoped those sirens that they heard weren't because of another mugging gone wrong. My guess is that this added to his thrill to talk about it so casually, knowing full well that the sirens were because of him. And it wouldn't be the only time that he made comments like this one. He just wanted people to talk about him. Yeah, and probably just added to the thrill Mm -hmm. to see people's horror. Yeah. A postmortem examination concluded that Lady Ashton was not sexually assaulted, even though her body had appeared to have been posed. The ligature mark around her neck was nine centimeters long. She had multiple injuries on her face, 
bruising on her nose, temple, neck, and both eyes. She had bitten the inside of her mouth and had cuts on her cheeks. Lady Ashton was found by police, face down with blood around her head. She was still wearing her wedding ring, which made police believe that the motive was not truly robbery, and they started to think that these three offenses could have been committed by the same dirtbag. Oh, good police work. Mm-hmm. However, unfortunately, oh no, a psychiatrist's profile led police to believe that they were looking for a younger male attacker. Oh, because most attackers are not in their 50s. It's true. So it's an easy assumption for yeah. them to make. But this would end up being an astronomical downfall for the investigation. Essentially, allowing John to fly under the radar quite easily, no one was looking for a middle-aged, grain-haired man. But you can see how that assumption would be made. Oh, yeah. Because 9.9 times out of 10, it is a young male attacker. And Australia had never seen someone go after elderly women before. Since most of the attacks occurred in the later afternoon, police first suspected a student and questioned males at the local high schools. Because they would happen between like 3, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Why wasn't he at work? I think that's maybe when he was getting off of his shift. In the meantime, John freely proceeded to commit more attacks on elderly women, becoming more sexually aggressive in nature. Was the sexual motive there all the time and he was just suppressing it, do you think? I think so. Because okay. even his earlier charges, he had... Ripped off that woman's clothing. And, yeah, yeah. One was an indecent assault. So it was starting right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. He's just becoming more brazen and more brave. Well, you would because you're committing all these crimes and not getting caught. No. And you know police are looking for a young male. Mm-hmm. They're out questioning high school students <laughs> because most men are at work at that time. That's right. On June 6th, John entered the Wesley Gardens Retirement Home in Belrose and molested a 77-year-old woman named Marjorie Moselelly. She told staff that a gray-haired man had put his hand under her nightgown, but she did not remember what he looked like. But then now they know he's gray-haired. Right. But they probably don't make this connection. They don't. These attacks that happen in the nursing homes or retirement homes, they do not connect for a long time Mm. to the murders and muggings that are happening. Yeah. He's just on a rampage doing all these different kinds of deviant crimes. June 24th, he went to the Caroline Chisholm Nursing Home in Lane Cove and slid his hand up an elderly woman's patient's dress to touch her bum. He then went into the next room of the center and reached his hand into the front of the patient's nightgown and fondled her breasts. This woman screamed and staff came running, but John was allowed to leave after questioning. They caught him? Yeah. Because she started to scream, so the staff ran in. And he was still in the room. Yeah, so they questioned him, but then let him leave. And there was no reports of anything being filed against him or any charges. So I wonder how he was able to discredit their claims. Yeah, or they just didn't take it seriously. I don't know. Like, did the lady have dementia? Not that I heard in this account. Oh, why didn't they believe her then? I don't know. Do you think that it's just so uncommon that they just couldn't wrap their minds around? Why would this younger man be trying to fondle this elderly patient? Yeah, two of them. Yeah. And maybe he said, oh, I saw some other guy just run out and I came in when I heard her scream. Like he could have told any kind of lie, Mm. but he got away with it. John assaulted an elderly woman named Euphemie or Effie Carney on August 8th on a street in Linfield. She was able to give a description of John. He pretended to be a doctor on October 6th at the Wybenia Nursing Home in Neutral Bay and reached his hand up the dress of a patient named Phyllis McNeil. She was blind, and so she could not identify her attacker. (gasps) John left the building when she started to scream for help. That is just awful. Isn't it? 
On October 18th, John would return to violence during his attack on 86-year-old Doris Cox. Doris was a widow with dementia. John followed her to her retirement home on Spit Road in Mossman. When she entered a stairwell at the front of the home, John viciously slammed her face into a brick wall. She fell to the ground and John fled. Because of her dementia, she was unable to correctly describe her attacker. She thought she was attacked by a young man, possibly on a skateboard. Oh no. Mm -hmm. She helped police with a sketch, but it definitely did not look like John. And I have to say, I saw the photos of this woman's face after her attack, and they are shocking. That would hurt so much. A brick wall? Yeah. Her face was just black and blue. Again, it doesn't seem to have any motive other than power. What is he trying to accomplish? Yeah, he just has this rage towards these women. And you won't believe what I'm going to tell you next. Neighbors cleaned the crime scene before the police arrived. Because they probably thought she had fallen again. They did. They thought she had fallen and fell face first into the wall. Oh, man. They were again just trying to be helpful. But can you imagine how frustrating this would be for the police to show up to a second attack and the crime scene has been cleaned up? I've decided I'm no longer going to be a helpful citizen anymore. (laughs) No cleaning up blood. Yeah, just don't clean up the crime scenes. Yeah. (laughs) Until you know it's not suspicious. (laughs) So if you walk in my house and I've fallen down the stairs, don't clean up any blood until you know. (laughs) A couple of weeks later, on November 2nd, John came across 78-year-old Dorothy Bank. She was a resident at Lane Cove, which is about 10 kilometers away from Mossman. John approached her and offered to carry her shopping bags for her. When they got to her house, she invited John in for a cup of tea as a way to thank him. He respectfully declined. What? Yeah, that's exactly what I wrote. What? (laughs) Who knows why he did this random act of kindness? He did not harm this woman. He literally helped her carry her groceries into her house. But maybe because she acknowledged his help. He didn't even give the other women the chance to acknowledge their help. It's true. He attacked them from behind. But he saw her carrying her groceries and was just like, oh, ma'am, let me help you. Wow. Thank you, young man. You're so sweet and kind. Would you like a cup of tea? See a multiple personality disorder? No. Oh, man. But I'm not sure why. And I thought, I'm going to put this in here because it's so random. Doesn't make any sense. No, it's off character for him. But as John was leaving Dorothy's house, he spotted his next murder victim. What? (laughs) And it wasn't that he saw this other lady first. It was as he was leaving. He'd already turned down the cup of tea. He sees his next victim. His next victim was 85-year-old Margaret Pahud. She was a widow and was also on her way home from grocery shopping. Is he going to carry her bags for her, too? No. That's what's just so weird about that. I'm not sure why. Well, yeah. What was the distinction between the two women? Why did one get help and the other one got, I'm assuming, a beating? The only thing that I can think of is that Margaret's looks were strikingly similar to John's mother, Frida. She's the one that looks so much like her. John struck her on the back of the head and then continued to hit her on the side of her head after she fell down. The coroner stated that Margaret sustained such significant skull fractures that she likely died almost immediately. And I wonder if her attack was so forceful because she looked so much like his mother. A lot of pent-up rage. Yeah. And she would be the perfect proxy for him to take that out on. And this is after his mother has died. Right. Mm -hmm. Again, he set her cane and shoes neatly by the body and took her purse. A young girl found Dorothy's body. At first, she thought it was just a pile of clothes left on the road. And I thought, what a grim realization she must have had to find out that it was a body. Unfortunately, her neighbors also assumed she had fallen and proceeded to clean up the crime scene, destroying evidence. What? 
Yep. How many times has this happened in this, this one? This is the third time now. And all I got to say is Australians are even nicer than Canadians. <laughs> We're known for being nice, but Australia, you're being really nice here. Cleaning up other people's blood. Yeah. Australians are so great. Yeah. John took the $300 he found in Dorothy's purse and again headed to the RSL club in Mossman. Her purse was later found in a drain at a nearby golf course. So he emptied it out Mm. and just got rid of it. The very next day, not even 24 hours later, John struck again. He is escalating. He's out of control. Olive Cleveland, an 81-year-old woman, would be his next kill. She was sitting on a bench outside of the Wesley Gardens Retirement Village in Belrose. John came up to her and tried to strike up a conversation. Olive started to walk away from John, and I wonder if she had heard about the crazed granny killer and was a little nervous. Yeah, I bet you they were all on edge right now. They were. She lived in the retirement center and was walking back towards it. So I think she was like, "Mm, this does not feel comfortable. I'm going to go back to where more people are. He's probably putting off huge creeper vibes. Yeah, because he is a huge creeper. John grabbed her from behind and forced her into a secluded area. He punched her and rammed her head into the concrete multiple times. He continued with his M.O. by removing her pantyhose and strangling Olive with them. He left her walking stick and shoes neatly by the body and then took off with $60 from her purse. There were no eyewitnesses, and once again, the crime scene was washed down before police could gather evidence. No. (laughs) I know when I read this, I was like, no, not really. Because sometimes you might find information that gets kind of cross-referenced between crime scenes, but it sounds like all of these ones were getting washed up. There's no way they thought she had fallen again. Like this one is an obvious crime scene with the nylons wrapped around her neck. The other ones all appeared like falls. Yeah, you're right. It's crazy. It's just really unfortunate that these crime scenes keep getting cleaned up. It really is because it probably could have prevented so many more crimes from happening had he just been caught earlier. Right. However, the only good thing about this one is that police finally decided to forget their original profile that they had received about the attacker being a young male and began to focus on the gray-haired man who had been described by some of the victims. They're like, "Mm, we're not getting anywhere with this young attacker. Maybe it was this older man. Good. Good Mm -hmm. for them. It's about time. Amen to that. (laughs) Three weeks later, on November 23rd, 1989, John found his fifth murder victim. He followed 93-year-old Muriel Faulkner to her home in Mossman. She had been out shopping and he spotted her from across the road where he was sitting inside of a hotel. Before following her home, he went to his vehicle and took out his gloves and hammer. He had this down to a science now and just reacted spontaneously whenever he saw a lady who sparked his killer interest. Muriel was partially deaf and blind and so she didn't notice John standing right behind her as she opened the door to her home. John reached around and put his hand over her mouth and then hit her on the head and neck until she fell to the floor. Once on the ground, while he attempted to remove her pantyhose, this 93-year-old queen regained consciousness and started to cry out for help. Sadly, John hit her again with the hammer to silence her and then proceeded to strangle her to death with her stockings. He set her shoes neatly by her body and then searched the house for money. He left with $100. The next day, a neighbor used a spare key to enter Muriel's house to check on her. This time, the neighbor realized that this was a crime scene and not a bad fall. Good job. Good job, neighbor. (laughs) Instead of cleaning the scene, they called the police. And because of this, police were able to finally collect some forensic evidence. One of the things being a bloody shoe print left by the body. 
A neighbor reported that they had seen a middle-aged portly man with gray hair nearby. The shoe print suggested that the killer was that of an older man, not a young man like they had originally suspected. Because <laughs> he was wearing his old man shoes. Yep. <laughs> they could tell that it was an older man brand. It's not something a younger kid would be walking around in. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the orthotics ones. <laughs> right. <laughs> but you can easily tell, like it's true by brands yeah. and makes of shoes. And they were like, mm, yeah, no high school kid is wearing these shoes around. <laughs> Not willingly, anyways. John took a break for Christmas. Oh, well, because his family would be around more, right? Yeah. I have been wondering, where is his wife in all this? He even sometimes comes home and they talk about these murders and these attacks that are happening. Oh, how horrific for her. Yeah, she has no idea. And he's not out late at night. Like he's doing this. He's on his way home from work, like three, four o'clock. So he gets home at five. He's still home before dinner. That's crazy. So like I said, John did take a break for Christmas, but was back at it on January 11th of 1990. And it just sickens me to actually think of him stopping to celebrate a religious holiday with his family during his killing spree. So back at it, John went to the Greenwich Hospital in River Road, Greenwich, selling pies. It was part of his sales route. While there, wearing his work uniform, he molested another elderly woman. Daisy Roberts was 82 and an advanced cancer patient in the palliative care unit. John asked her if she was losing body heat and then proceeded to raise her gown and grope her. Daisy thankfully pressed an alarm button and called for help, making John leave. A nurse had run in and confronted John, but he did get away. But not before she was able to run out and get his license plate number. Good for her. Mm-hmm. Staff at the hospital were able to identify the attacker as John Wayne Glover since he regularly sold his pies there. So I feel like he was getting a little overly mm. confident to start mixing his attacks now with work. Yeah. But maybe he was anxious because he was getting back to work after the holidays and didn't want to wait till after shift, maybe. Police arranged with John to come to the station the next day so that they could speak to him. When he didn't show up for the meeting, the police called his house. His wife, Gay, answered the phone and told them that John couldn't come to the phone because he had just tried to kill himself and was recovering at the Royal North Shore Hospital. Oh, so he thought he was caught. He did. John had consumed a bottle of scotch and I believe had taken some pills. He then got into a hot bath. Police found a note written by John that said, quote, no more grannies. It also said that Essie, his mother-in-law, started it. What? When questioned, John said it was about his mother-in-law, but this made police more suspicious of John. Yeah, that would send up some red flags. Right, because he's been coined the granny killer already by this point. Yeah. John wouldn't allow the police to interview him when they came to the hospital, but he did allow them to take his photo, which they then used to have his victims identify him. Well, because he's probably feeling overconfident, still thinking that they were looking for some younger guy. Yeah, he doesn't know at this point that they're starting to set their sights on him. And he's thinking they're looking at him for the molestation, not for the murders. Police, however, didn't have enough evidence to arrest him, so they kept him under close surveillance instead. At this point, the molestations are not connected to the murders, but police were viewing John as a strong suspect. It's about time. Mm-hmm. Police were combing the nearby nursing homes, asking questions, and trying to gather evidence. Their cover was almost blown when they interviewed a staff member at a nursing home who just so happened to be Gay Glover, John's wife. Oh no. She was working there. And I guess she had figured out who they were talking about. She's like, are you talking about John Glover? But they were able to convince her that he wasn't a suspect in the granny killings, even though he was. Oh. And so did they use information she turned in to them? 
It didn't sound like she incriminated him. Okay. But she doesn't think he is this at this time either. Yeah. But wouldn't you start to put two and two together then? Wouldn't that seed of doubt be planted? Maybe. It would just be starting at this point because this is the first interaction with the right. law. But just how ironic. Those poor policemen, when she answers the phone, them not knowing that it's his yeah. wife they're talking to. Because they're trying not to alert him of their investigation. By this time, the task force to catch Mossman's deranged killer had grown to around 70 members. So it was a big task That's force. a huge task force. It is. Gay had no idea what her husband had been doing, and they even talked about the murders, with John expressing how much he hoped that the granny killer would get caught. When police finally interviewed John, he denied the molestations. They decided not to question him about the murders yet so that he wouldn't be suspicious, and they could follow him more easily. And this next part is crazy to me that this is what happened. John was being watched as he pulled out of his twin garage in his blue station wagon on March 19, 1990. His behavior was odd in comparison to what the officers had previously observed. They had been tailing him for about six weeks at this point. He was wearing his sunnies, even though it was cloudy, and was driving erratically. And what so, the heck are sunnies? That's your Australian slang word. Sunnies means sunglasses. Okay. <laughs> like I said, it's the only one that I put in the case. If you want to hear more, go listen to Catherine Knight. I was thinking like he's wearing his Sunday best. Nope, his sunnies. And I love that. I'm going to start calling my sunglasses my sunnies. <laughs> he would speed up and slow down and drove around aimlessly for about an hour. He ended up stopping at a liquor store and made a purchase. He has to know that they're tailing him. I don't think he does because of what he proceeds to do. But my question is, how are the police not thinking something is up? They've been following him for six weeks and he starts acting all weird. Weird. Yeah. And they know he made a purchase because he went into the store and he came out with a brown bag. Finally, he parked and got out of his car on Medusa Street. He carried a black leather attache case with him. He combed his hair, adjusted his tie, and knocked on the residence. Police watched as 60-year-old Joan Sinclair let John into her home at Beauty Point around 10.26 a.m. By 1 o'clock in the afternoon, police could no longer detect any movement in the home or see John inside the house. At 3.30 p.m., a lady showed up to the residence with two school-aged boys. She knocked on the door, but no one answered. She finally took the kids to a neighbor's house and left the boys there. Police later learned that these two boys were Joan's grandsons, and she was supposed to watch them after school. Yeah. The neighbor later came to the house to see if Joan would answer, but she didn't. Okay, why are the police not, like, they're tailing this guy. First of all, why would they even let him enter the house without them creeping up to the windows and finding out what's going on? That's the million dollar question, Melissa. And that's why I said this will blow your mind. It is so frustrating what happens. They just sit and watch from the street as he kills another person. Yeah. Without interfering at all. What did they think he was doing? I don't know. He comes in at 1026. One o'clock, they can no longer see any movement in the house. The kids come at 330. She doesn't answer the door. And at that time, you're going in. Yeah, but no, they didn't. What? I know it was so bizarre to me as well. The neighbor came back a second time and left a note informing Joan that the boys were at her house with her. Police were becoming more concerned and were finally given permission by the task force commander to enter Joan's house around 6 o'clock p.m. on the basis of checking on barking dogs as their reason. So they technically didn't have a reason to enter the Mm -hmm. premises. And this had been a total of seven and a half hours after John had initially entered the home. And they had never seen him exit. No. Oh, super suspicious. Yeah. I mean, not to knock Australia's police, but come on, seven and a half hours. But if you can't 
enter without a reason for entering, then how do you justify that? Unless you're going to blow open your case of like, this is the guy we're trailing for the granny killer. True. But could you not do a wellness check? Oh, you'd think so. So finally, dogs started to bark, and that's what they used as their excuse to go up. Two officers knocked on the door, but no one answered. They went around to the back of the door and peeked through the glass. They saw a hammer lying on the floor covered in dried blood. The blood had time to dry as police sat watching the house. That's crazy. It is. Four officers entered the home and found Joan's lifeless body. Her head had been beaten and was wrapped up in towels that were now soaked in blood. He wrapped her head up in towels. Mm -hmm. That's interesting because he's never tried to take care of them afterwards. We find out later that he had a relationship with this woman. Oh, okay. Yeah, this is the only one that he knew personally. So did he save her for his last victim then? Possibly. Her clothing from the waist down had been removed and her pantyhose were found around her neck. Her genitals showed injury, but John would later deny raping her. John was found unconscious from another suicide attempt. He drank a bottle of Vat 69, which is a blended scotch whiskey, took a bunch of Valium, slit his left wrist, and then got into a filled tub to wait for death. John survived this suicide attempt and later told police that he had a relationship with Joan Sinclair and admitted to murdering her. The hunt for the granny killer was finally over. They had been looking for John for over a year, and the task force to find him had just continuously grown in numbers. It may seem like the police could have solved the case earlier. Some mistakes were made, but they really did put in some due diligence. They had set up hotlines, street patrols, and surveillances across the areas of attacks. They went door-to-door questioning people and had close to 600 suspects throughout the investigation. They even placed a reward that kept increasing until it went from $20,000 to a whopping $250,000. Wow. Yeah, for leads that could help make an arrest. Communities joined in and had set up services for older women to use while going to and from their homes so that they wouldn't have to venture out alone. So there was, like I said, mass hysteria at that time. About the investigation, one officer later said, quote, I've had nearly 30 years on the job, and I think the worst month of my police experience was November 1989. You get so frustrated with yourself and those around you when you can't get a result, and that's very stressful. You'd go home, and you're on tenterhooks all night. I wasn't eating or sleeping, and this cowardly killer kept murdering frail old ladies. That would be hard. It would. In this case, definitely had taken Australia by storm and was one of the biggest investigations ever to take place at that time. John's trial started on March 28, 1990. He pled not guilty to his crimes on the grounds of diminished responsibility. John claimed that he was in a trance when he murdered each of the six women. Yeah, right. Exactly. He later admitted that he had nothing to lose by trying to plea insanity. Nobody ever does. Mm -mm. His defense pushed for a manslaughter charge. Psychiatrist Robert Strum suggested that John's disorder was due to his relationship with his promiscuous mother. The defense stated that John had built up hostility towards his mother and then again towards his mother-in-law. His mother-in-law apparently triggered him and he had to take out his frustration on others. Another psychiatrist, John Shand, claimed that John had a severe personality disorder and had, quote, probably carried out more offenses than he had ever been charged with. See, I did call it personality disorder. On the other side of this, forensic psychiatrist Rod Milton said that John knew exactly what he was doing. He had arranged the victim's clothing after each murder so that when someone discovered the bodies, they would be able to see right up their dresses. (gasps) He did that? He did. This is posing like those photographs that he had found of his mother. And just what a degrading thing to do for these older women. 
who especially at that time, modesty would have been a very important thing. Yeah. Rod Milton said, quote, he enjoys this because he is still expending energy and the murder is not complete until he carries out his sexual experience or examination. John had also planned each time how to spend the victim's money and carefully cleaned his murder weapon, the hammer, with acid after each kill. He was able to choose when to attack and carefully covered his tracks. The murders were opportunistic, but the risks at the time were not overwhelming. And I thought him choosing to not murder that one lady who he carried her groceries and then murder the next did show that he had the ability to choose. Yeah, it really did. Because otherwise, if he couldn't control himself, then he would have had to kill that woman as well. I don't believe he's crazy. No, I don't either. (laughs) The prosecution psychiatrist said that John was a psychopath who was, quote, an angered, retaliatory type predator. He said that John killed because he enjoyed it and had a hatred towards women. Killing women gave him gratification, anticipated pleasures, and gave him pleasure to express anger. He also spoke about his twisted relationship with his mother, suggesting that John was jealous of the attention his mother gave so many other men while he was growing up. Oh, that's an interesting theory. It is. So he wanted to be a mama's boy. And was not. Mm -hmm. He had to watch his siblings so she could go out, or he had to wait in the car. Justice James Wood felt that John was extremely violent and dangerous. He said, quote, I have no alternative other than to impose the maximum available sentence, which means that the prisoner will be required to spend the remainder of his natural life in jail. It is inappropriate to impose any minimum term to be served before release on parole. Having regard to those life sentences, this is not a case where the prisoner may ever be released pursuant to any order of this court. He is never to be released. So he was never eligible for parole? No. On November 29th, after the jury deliberated for just under three hours, John was found guilty of all six murders and he was given a life sentence in the Darlinghurst Supreme Court for each of his victims. So Gwendolyn Mitchell Hill, Lady Ashton, Margaret Pahud, Olive Cleveland, Muriel Faulkner, and Joan Sinclair. And so many others. (laughs) Yeah, and many others. John was sent to the Lithgow Correctional Centre in Lithgow, New South Wales to be held in a maximum security cell. It was reported that John never showed any remorse for his actions and admitted to just going back to his regular life after each murder. His poor family. Yeah, he was just so nonchalant about it. In 2004, John received treatment for cancer while incarcerated. In May of 2005, John was put on suicide watch when he told prison staff, quote, I've had enough. I want to kill myself. He was examined by mental health professionals and was monitored on a closed circuit television. On September 10th, 2005, John would end his own life. He was pronounced dead at 1.25 p.m. at the age of 72. He had hung himself inside his cell by tying a makeshift noose around a shower fitting. He was depressed and hadn't left his cell in 30 days and had withered away to 59 kilograms, which is about 130 pounds, prior to his death. But we don't feel sorry for him. Nope. John never did admit to the plethora of other crimes that he was accused of, There isn't time to go through all of them, but it seems likely that he committed many more crimes than just the six murder victims from Australia's North Shore. However, just days before he took his own life, John made a sketch of a park and pointed out two pine trees in the image. In the middle of the right pine tree, the number nine could be seen between the leaves and branches. It is believed that the nine represents either the total number of murders that John committed or the number of unsolved murders he committed. And I thought, what a dirtbag to purposefully leave everyone guessing. If you're going to kill yourself, why not just come clean? 
Yeah. My guess is that the nine is for the unsolved cases. Police seem to have good reason to believe he murdered seven more women from unsolved cases. We talked about this just really briefly, but my question is, if he started to murder decades earlier and the victims represented his disdain towards his mother, wouldn't their ages increase alongside his mother's age? Mm -hmm. So many of his victims should have been younger. I'm still trying to wrap my head around those mommy issues. I know. Once dead, no one from John's family came to claim his body. No, he had done enough damage already to that family. Yep, they're like, we don't want him. After more than 20 years of marriage, Gay had gone to New Zealand with their daughters. She never went to see him in jail and said he was better off dead. It didn't sound like his daughters had any contact with him either. And one journalist had said that that was the only time she saw him show any kind of emotion was when talking about his daughters. Mm. So his family didn't claim him. But however, an anonymous woman from Sydney did claim his body and paid for his funeral. What? Why? I don't know. We who was no, she? We have no idea. <laughs> I have right here. We have no idea who she is or why on earth she would do this. No idea. But some anonymous woman from Sydney came in and took his body, paid for a funeral. She said she didn't want him to have a pauper's funeral. Huh. So I don't who know if that's is like, that woman? I don't know. Is it like in last week's case where David Shearing, you know, had a lover and a wife and got married? But it didn't sound like he had any correspondence with somebody else. So I'm not sure if this was just some crazy lady infatuated with him. If it was a family member who didn't want anyone else to know that they were doing it. I don't know. Or somebody truly sadistic that took his body and mutilated it. <laughs> Maybe. Fed it to the fish. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But regardless, is... it doesn't seem like he deserved that. <laughs> no, that is bizarre. Yeah. He didn't have any women that came to visit him. Not that was reported. Huh. No, he hadn't even left his cell in the last 30 days of his life. That sounds crazy. Yeah. John Wayne Glover was the first killer of his kind in Australia and has since been used as case studies for law enforcement around the world. So that they don't get pigeonholed into one suspect type? Right. While being interviewed by journalists in prison, John was asked what it was that pushed him or compelled him to bash little old ladies on the head with a hammer. He responded by saying, quote, well, that's what I can't work out. That's the part that everyone's trying to work out. Maybe you can help me. Half of me is white and half of me is black. Half of me is good and half of me is bad. But I can't understand the gray matter in the middle. That's self-reflective I guess it's not that's a jerk thing to say I don't know you tell me I'm good and I'm bad what's the gray in the middle well and maybe I'm feeling this way too because as I read through the interview he's just got smart aleck comments oh. all the time and he's laughing sometimes during the interview and just such a dirt bag oh yeah no remorse at all and that is the horrible case of Australia's sick and disgusting spineless goop of a man the granny killer who showed zero remorse for his crimes and was basically a waste of walking skin, John Wayne Glover. Gross. He is a dirtbag. He is a dirtbag. Well, that was an interesting case, Christy. And now I feel like I have to go hug my granny. I know. I wish I still had grannies to hug. <laughs> <laughs> and they're not allowed to walk by themselves. No. And I was going to say at nighttime, but it's not even at nighttime that no. he attacked them. No, it was in the middle of the afternoon. So bad. It did make me think of my grandma who most recently passed away because she would go downtown by herself and she was taking the bus and the transits and going all over these places and all by herself. Just makes them more of a dirtbag. Anytime you're attacking someone who can't fight back. Yeah. They were so vulnerable. Yeah. Well, that was a truly disturbing case that you brought us, Christy. Yeah. Sorry about that. And Australian listeners, hopefully I did it okay. 
and she pronounced everything right. <laughs> I know. I know that I didn't. I'm sure that I didn't, but I did try my best. And we really appreciate you listening, but we appreciate all of our listeners everywhere. Absolutely. And we hope you'll check us out next week, too. Until then. See ya. Bye. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is why we test. (laughs) Could you imagine if we did the whole thing? (laughs) No. Oh, man. What a nightmare. (laughs) Gerontophilia. 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 (laughs) It's going to keep saying it. Gerontophilia. Gerontophilia. I'm sure there must be some John Waynes that are okay. By 1962, he was sentenced to only a three... Totally. That's totally step. I'm sorry. That's really stepping up his criminal. That's really step. <laughs> so was his sexual motive? Was the sexual motive? Modification. Motive. Yes. <laughs> Whose stomach is that now? Is that yours or is that mine? I think that was yours. <laughs> <laughs> Your stomach has now learned to throw his voice. <laughs> If it quacks like a duck. <laughs> like, I can ha- handle a hamburger. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like, are we giving tips to murderers out there? Here, like this. This is how we talk. <laughs> Did that just move on its own? Yes. <laughs> I'm hoping it's because I turned my head, but... <laughs> we'll go with that. <laughs> but it was, like, behind me. I know. <laughs> People are living in Christie's house Oops. under the stairs. Yep. I got spooky wookies at my house. (laughs) The ghosties. See ya. (laughs) Hey, we're live, pal. And we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now, but we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Hi, this is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on blasttheradio.com. Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's BlastTheRadio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.